and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some of your favorite people from Philadelphia gather to talk about all things movies. I am joined this week by Sam and Christine. Uh, Connor is away this week, hopefully uh, not bound in a bed by one of his adoring fans. With any luck, he'll be rejoining us soon. But uh, in the meantime, I uh, just wanted to check in, see how everybody's doing, if anybody's seen anything interesting lately, uh, or if we've had any connection with uh, some of our sibling podcasts through the Movie John Podcast Network. As I understand, Sam, you may have some news. I certainly do. So I guest starred on Disney Deviants, our sister pod, and we talked about the ultimate Christmas gift. Uh, it was a movie I thought I had never seen. Turns out I had some distant distant memories it was jogged by one particular scene um so when that movie uh when that movie when that episode drops please take a listen listen first of all listen to them anyway um Great i had show. a yeah. fantastic time and uh their podcast is phenomenal uh, adese was like here's sam from butter with that they do so much research over there and i was like okay but you guys do too like the, their segments the way they have everything prepared i was a little intimidated so definitely worth a listen yeah that's what i look forward to coming down the pike soon uh so be sure to stay tuned through movie john uh they're going to be giving you giving you more info on our show as well as when that crossover episode is going to happen and in the meantime be sure to check out the back catalog of disney deviants because yeah great show yeah beyond that has anybody seen watched or absorbed anything recently that has really caught their attention anything you really want to talk about uh, I think uh, Spirit of Christmas really launched a whole uh, f- sort of open the floodgates, so to speak, of like Hallmark Christmas movies that I've watched. But the one I want to talk about briefly actually is not a Hallmark or Lifetime Christmas movie. This was a le- supposedly legit movie that came out in theaters uh, and starred some pretty big A-listers It was called The Nutcracker and the Four Realms. And boy, was that awful. It stars Keira Knightley, the the actress that plays Clara. I've seen her. She looked familiar. I couldn't really place her. Matthew McFadden, who I'll watch him in anything, but God, he was so, it was, everybody is so bad in this movie. Oh, so it's like a Pride and Prejudice reunion? It's a Pride and Bridges reunion, although Kira Knightley plays the Sugar Plum Fairy. So this movie is sort of follows the main beats of the ball, of the Nutcracker ballet, but at the same time, like is trying to like world build and also sort of reimagine the story a little bit. Morgan Freeman is in it. He plays the 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 Godfather, who's uh, sort of like in the ballet. He I think he unleashes the rat. I don't know. There's uh, he, he's sort of like a, a pretty <laughs> mythic figure in the ballet. But there's all of this backstory that this movie shoves in, and it's so disappointing because throughout the whole movie, it actually intersperses real ballet and the set design. It's Misty Copeland is dancing. As the Sugar Plum Fairy in, or maybe she's Clara, I can't remember, but in the ballet, this movie features the best baller, like ballet dancer in the country, Misty Copeland. And you're like, this movie is doing itself no services by presenting a beautiful ballet with amazing set design, because it just, it, it just makes you question why make a CGI movie and then put in a beautiful ballet because you'd think the whole move point of the movie is to suggest that there can be a movie version of this ballet when really what you should just do is go watch the Nutcracker Ballet. If you are intrigued 
by any points of this, go watch it, I guess. But it is god awful. And Kira Knightley playing the Sugar Plum Fairy, she's trying. She's really trying to ham it up. She she has this voice like this, and she's trying to play this little character that. Spoiler alert: she ends up being the villain of the movie, and it's she eats cotton candy out of her hair. Her hair is made of cotton candy, and it is rough going. So that's like, Nutcracker in the Four Realms for you. Well, well now, wait yeah, a there's, Does the hair, does it grow back? Can she eat, is it like a never-ending supply of cotton candy? Uh, one is led to believe because she's oh. mid-dialogue, like mid sort of, yeah, dialogue. She just grabs at the back of her head, pulls out some cotton candy and starts eating it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <that's> like horrible. <laughs> this is the final straw. <laughs> it's rough, rough going. Sounds very Cats-esque. I mean, I think this podcast knows my feelings about cats. I w- will justify it till the end of times. So <laughs> it's cats-esque, but I would rather watch cats than the Nutcracker in the Four Realms. I would rather see the ballet that this movie clearly wanted to make with starring Misty Copeland. Anyhow. I don't have anything quite, uh, quite as strong as that, Christine. Um, I can't remember... Honestly, if I talked about this already, if I have, we'll hear it again. Um, so when I visited my family for Thanksgiving, I saw House of Gucci. And um, have I talked about this? Did I? I don't no, think so. how was no, no. it? I want to know everything. Yeah, I enjoyed it. There's a like there's a lot to be said, and there are people saying it. I went for Adam Driver, um, and I was I was fed so you know like it was it was good in that regard um Lady Gaga really obviously she steals the show and does an incredible job um I would see it Adam Driver's accent is terrible it's so bad um I didn't I thought it was gonna be better because he's actually a good actor um he does an incredible job acting except for the accent it's wretched (laughs) Yeah, I was dealing with some of that with um, Power of the Dog, the new Jane Campion film, which I, I really adored. But yeah, Benedict's accent uh, could have used a lot more work. I've been hearing some rumblings about Cumberbatch's attempt at, yeah, like a cowboy. Oh, God. Well, he can't even say accent. penguin. So like in his he own can't say penguin. <laughs> Should that restrict him from being a cowboy? Does that come up a lot in the West? <laughs> well, I mean, he can't even say. I gotta word. round up these penguins. <laughs> but he doesn't say penguins. He said like penguins, and you're like, ew. <laughs> In what context are we referring to? Oh God, I think it was like some nature documentary that he was, oh. whatever, narrating, and and then he said penguins, and people couldn't let it go. Like me, I couldn't let it go. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I I think he's tried to do another. It, does he try to do a non-British accent in Doctor Strange? Is he, like, supposed to be from New York City? Yeah, it's sort of just like a flat, general American English accent. It's not that great, I don't think, in Doctor Strange. Any, anyhow, but... Great movie, though. Check mm. it out. I'm very excited to see it. Not so much a great movie is what we're going to be talking about uh, this week. Oh, Sam. Sam seems upset. Okay, we'll we'll get to opinions soon. But, I mean, uh, as we teased last week, and sort of continuing uh, what I feel are sort of like Hallmark-adjacent Christmas films, uh, that sort of format, formula, and certainly tone, uh, or at least an effort at it, uh, is on full display here uh, in 2017's holiday comedy film, 
Pottersville. Now, we suggested last week, if you folks tuned in, that you check out the movie before we discuss it, because it's probably best to go into the movie blind rather than hearing our discussion first. But if you haven't checked it out, just go ahead and watch it. Uh, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll chill out here for you know uh, an hour and a half, and then you can come on back and uh, and check it out, check out our discussion, or you could just pause it and go watch it. Either way. Uh, so assuming now that you've seen Pottersville, uh, then you know that it is a 2017 uh, holiday comedy directed by Seth Hendrickson, written by uh, Daniel Meyer. I've never heard of either of them in any other context. Uh, Pottersville stars Michael Shannon, Ron Perlman, Judy Greer, Thomas Lennon, Christina Hendricks, and Ian McShane, and has boasted a 0% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> since its release. In short, the film, uh, as a summary, is about the economically depressed town of Pottersville where shopkeep Raynard Grieger, uh, played by Michael Shannon, watches his marriage unravel upon discovering that his wife is having an affair with members of a tri-county furry community. Uh, after a night of heavy drinking, Mater dons hunting fatigues and a gorilla mask and runs amok throughout the town. In the morning, the people of Pottersville come together in their belief that the town has become home to a Sasquatch. Uh, but when a reality TV show Monster Hunter, played by Thomas Lennon, arrives to investigate, it's up to Maynard to decide how far he'll carry on the charade as the town's hopes now rest upon the Sasquatch sightings being real. So that's that's Pottersville. Uh, it's the kind of movie that I think you could not have possibly guessed the plot of without having had some hints or even having seen the trailer. Pretty strange uh, marketing rollout to go with that and uh, pretty strange all around, which again is why we suggest watching it first. It was, I believe, everyone's first time seeing this around the horn. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so Sam and Christine nodding there. It seems, uh, yeah, that uh, kind of new to all of us. I just watched it for the first time this year as well. So that being said, what was your experience with Pottersville? How do you feel it shook out? And uh, what was your big general takeaway before we get into the story? So I mentioned to a friend that I was about to watch Pottersville and he goes, that is the most frustrating movie ever. And I was like, that's an interesting like take on a movie. So then I watched it and I thought that his description of this as a frustrating movie was pretty on point because it's, I was about to text the group 15 minutes in and was like, I think this is great. It's, it's sort of, uh, has this almost, it has a somber, almost sinister tone as you're introduced to the character that Michael Shannon plays. And he's this just sad shopkeeper. And I could see this veering into like a Charlie Kaufman movie where it's like the whole town, like he's this overlooked guy and nobody understands him. And this movie just sort of sits with him at his shop as he interacts with townsfolk. And it happens to be around Christmas. And I was like, I don't get what the big deal is, but then, and then, so then I was going to text the group and be like, I'm really into this. And then <laughs> 10 minutes later, it turns into a completely different movie. And so I think frustrating was a great way to describe was like the movie that could have been. And then, and I enjoy like the guy who plays the Sasquatch hunter. I was like, Oh, he looks familiar. And I looked him up and he's like from Reno 911. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Okay, like he's got some comedy chops and stuff, but it was just such a throwaway. I, I, at least in my opinion, I thought the whole Sasquatch hunt was such a throwaway distraction from what could be a really interesting movie. 
And I thought Michael Shannon was trying his best. And I liked what, like Ron Perlman, I thought was really funny. I thought Chris, uh, Christina Hendricks was really funny. And uh, Judy Greer, like great cast. Just couldn't pull it all together because it really doesn't know what it wants to be. If you look at the poster of this movie, it gives you, as Dave suggested, no hints as to the odd ch- uh, directions this movie is going to go in. Yeah, I'd say I agree with the majority of that, especially as concerns uh, Tom Lennon when he uh, hijacks this whole goddamn movie for a long time. And I did find the beginning and end bits with Maynard to be way more interesting. Although I found them interesting because I think everyone is very miscast. I think like everyone's really struggling their way through trying to make sense of this because it's like it's kind of a it's. Well, I don't want to say too much before we before I get into all that and before we get Sam's take. But in general, I think that the, this movie really struggles with tone and casting in a, in a huge way, as well as pacing. Well, if it had leaned into an odd tone, like when Judy Greer, when Judy Greer, who's like the the other shopkeeper, like the shopkeeps assistant or whatever, she's like, "What's wrong, Maynard? Why are you so sad?" You know, she's clearly not like throwing out her amazing acting chops, but she's so. I think. She sort of knew what the movie could be and maybe was trying to uh, lean into that. And it's like, that's the lost movie I see there. Sort of like an interesting take on sort of sort of stock characters in like in like a Hallmark movie or something. And then sort of leaning into the absurdity of it. Yeah, I think she gets it and um, and Perlman gets it to a degree. But otherwise, I would I, I'd argue against that. But, yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll get into the performance shortly. Sam, uh, what was your general takeaway from Pottersville? So surprised to hear both of you talk about the movie this way, because I really enjoyed it. I think that the movie had two goals. One, to throw a major curve or fastball at you what you think is going to be somewhat of a wholesome Christmas movie just turns into like a giant cryptid search. I love that. Um, and, and two, just like have a good time. And I don't know. I think that the movie does both of those really well. I don't know if either of you know this about me. Um, but my, my roommates and I are like super into like cryptids. So like Mothman, Bigfoot. So when this happened to be like the twist, I was cheering on my couch like, hooray, this takes it to to a level that I wasn't expecting. There's no way you could expect this, like Dave, like you said. And I'm so, I'm so glad I listened to you and I didn't search anything about it. And I just let myself be surprised. And like Christine, I think you had said the first 15 minutes you were like really into. I was... (laughs) bored and I was like you know there has to be like a reason why Dave picked this like he like this is not like a Dave movie and then the first furry scene happens and I was like ah yes now it gets really fucked up and surreal so this is why Dave picked this so okay I get it now um I was like moderately worried for a second I was like I don't want to go through this whole movie with Michael Shannon like this I don't want to do it um, and I didn't have to, thank God. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, a movie you couldn't have predicted going into it uh, blind. But yeah, a, a lot that goes into all that. I mean, I think my my first note, and this is just sort of like a general walkthrough of uh, a lot of Pottersville, uh, is that this movie really does not, it, even at the onset for me, have any idea what its tone is. Because it does start with um, 
you know, we we get a title sequence that is is very like Hallmark Christmassy font. We have like you know the the names emerging from like CGI kind of like snowflakes that appear on the screen. Uh, we have the Debornay's Christmas time, but all of this is over establishing shots of Pottersville, most of which is apparently for sale at bottom dollar prices. Like there's just signs about debt and for sale everywhere. And this is seemingly just like a, a miserably destitute town in this, in what aims to be like a heartwarming sort of like TV Christmas movie kind of vibe. And I think that's what this movie really stumbles upon, or stumbles with, which is this sort of, this want to present like a, a sort of like warm and fuzzy kind of Christmas narrative, but also inject sort of like dark humor into it. And I think those two things bash into each other in a way that, as far as this production is concerned, really never find a way to 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 a meaningful compromise. It's sort of like a like a steak covered in cake icing. It's like these two things don't belong together. A wet steak? I, yeah, I fucked uh, it yeah. up. Or sloppy steak, that's <laughs> sloppy it. Yeah, sloppy steak. steak. I was like, shit, I messed it up. Sloppy steak. <laughs> that's so funny. I just, I just don't, I don't agree. I don't know. I, I think that... I feel like this movie knows exactly what it's doing and it doesn't. But then, so you, well, the thing for me too, another stumbling block is that just the casting. I mean, we have Michael Shannon, we have Ron Perlman and we have Ian McShane in this warm and fuzzy Christmas movie. These are like career heavy actors. Like they're always a menacing figure. And so to have Michael Shannon struggle to try to present himself as the, you know, kind of like, quietly troubled but warm and fuzzy Maynard and good-natured guy while also having like the unspoken menace of being Michael Shannon the whole time really conflates with the whole thing and I think it's a bad choice in particular with him because this movie tries to be funny and I think Michael Shannon is not funny not only in this but in general wait but I thought I I think he's great actor but he's he should be a heavy he shouldn't be this well, the thing is, is I thought it was a wonderful casting choice for Michael Shannon because I think the movie did set out to be kind of that, quote, not your average Hallmark Christmas, but like, the, it, as you mentioned, Dave, by infusing it with darker elements. So I think it knew what it wanted to be in the in the casting people like Michael Shannon, Ian McShane. But I don't think that they the movie fully used the wonderful dissonance that is casting these types of performers in the context of a Hallmarky story and movie. And that's what I wish it had continued with. And that's why I loved the opening where I was like, ooh, Michael Shannon is this supposed innocent shopkeeper, but there's something lurking underneath there and I want to figure it out. And then it turns out that it doesn't really follow that sort of like adventure into his psyche. It's more of like him just getting caught up in the interesting Sasquatch foibles. I guess that's what I mean, yeah, is that it? this movie had potential one way or the other, but it chose to smash those two tones together in a way that you lose something from each in trying to balance or juggle them, at least for me. But Sam, you seem to think otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I read the movie as an entire joke. <laughs> I mean, from like, why would you cast Michael Shannon as a character like this if you weren't trying to just <laughs> make an entire joke of a film? But sounds like that's not everybody's read. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing how scenes that like I thought were really great and I really liked how y'all might have interpreted those differently. So I, I'm looking forward to it. Well, and speaking of uh, Shannon, yeah, he's, you know, he's um, Maynard Grieger. He's the 
shopkeep of um, the local grocery and uh, just sort of general store within Pottersville. It seems to be the only place that's open because as we established, he goes to shovel the sidewalk outside and then the rest of the street. He also has to shovel because all the other streets on main, all the other shops on main street are closed. So, you know, Merry Christmas, everybody. We also established that Maynard has been allowing the townsfolk to prey on his sympathies and good nature. Uh, he's writing owed debts uh, for groceries in a large ledger and allowing people to walk out with armfuls of shit for free. Uh, personally, I'd rather not be in Michael Shannon's large debt ledger. I would definitely rather just pay him the money because that sounds terrifying. But we also learned that the old mill has closed and that's impacted the town financially. So it seems Pottersville is on hard times. And he, as this good natured shopkeep, is sort of the only person keeping everybody afloat. Yeah. But I, but like, but this is part of the joke, right? Like this is this is why it's so funny because you know it, it's calling attention to all the tropes that are in these films and just calling out how absolutely ridiculous it is, and and you can see that in both owing Michael Shannon debt that is horrific, <laughs> but like it almost they're almost saying, hey, here's a joke, here's a joke, here's a joke by saying like. Um, this woman is really nicely dressed. So is her son and they're still having Christmas, but like they can't afford to pay for these groceries. Cause like the mill closed, the mill's the only place where people are employed, um, or could have been employed in, um, the, the, like, yeah. It sure seems that way. He's got to shovel the whole town apparently because he's the only store there is. Yeah. I loved all of those. I thought that was like, Sam, yeah, your point, right these like sort of throwaway lines of these characters that clearly aren't fully fleshed out, but that wonderfully present uh, sort of a play on these Hallmark Christmas movie tropes. But why not just have a movie where he's interact, just going around interacting with the whole town? Like, I feel like there is substance there and he could make some really, really funny. Because why not throw in Bigfoot? I'm sorry. I'm for this movie. I'm just, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm so sorry. Well, we meet then also Judy Greer. Uh, She's playing Parker, uh, Maynard's shopkeep, uh, who's really smitten for the radiant charm of Michael Shannon, even though saying those words together is inherently confusing. But she's really got a thing for him and she's got a a soft spot for him and seems to be uh, really supportive of him, but also has this longing for him, even though he's, he's married. That being an undercurrent there. Next, we meet Ian McShane's character because this is a feel-good holiday comedy. So who else rolls into the store but a drunken Ian McShane as Bart selling loose elk steaks out of his jacket and speaking about the nihilism of an unfeeling universe. Again, Merry Christmas one and all. It's so, it's just, it's so good. And, um, you know, the, the chemistry between Michael Shannon and Judy Greer, of which there is none, um, really reminded <laughs> me of the conversation we had about Spirit of Christmas, where really they had no chemistry or um, he was stiff as a board, right? Like, like, yeah, that's exactly what happens in these films. It's just over and over again. And you probably could not have a straighter, like more flat of an actor than Michael Shannon, honestly. Well, at the very least in this role, yeah. Yeah, an interesting introduction sort of to the uh, the town at large and, and some of the people in Maynard's life. And it also does set us up for sort of the big inciting incident because Bart not only gives him some elk steaks, uh, but also hands over some moonshine. Michael Shannon mentioning that he hasn't had a drink since his wedding night. 
so he's he's a bit of a you know a bit of a stiff in a way but he decides you know what uh, maybe i'll cut loose maybe i'll bring home this elk steak and uh we'll do this nice celebration with my wife and maybe i'll have a couple of drinks so it prompts him to leave early to surprise his wife at home uh in the fabled storytelling tradition of discovering an affair uh which he does <laughs> and what an affair it is his wife connie uh pretty inexplicably played by christina christina hendricks is a secret furry uh, a rabbit to be exact uh, she is uh, engaged in an affair with local sheriff jack played by ron perlman who has donned a wolf persona uh, in his shock maynard keeps referring to jack's first sona as a squirrel to which jack continuously corrects him in a recurring joke that for me never gets funny uh, and then connie reveals that she wants a separation because she wants more excitement out of life delivered with the emotional maturity of a t child throwing a tantrum via Christina Hendricks. So this whole scene plays out pretty sloppily, in my opinion, albeit very shocking and very funny, not in a way that was perhaps intended, I guess. So at least that's my read. What do you guys think? I was still lolling up through this whole sequence. Like, the this is still, gag? like, the whole 15 minutes in. I, I was like... So I, many times. I was still... This was about the time where I would think I was about to text the group chat and be like... I don't know what everyone's problem with this movie is. <laughs> so I was still fine. Christina Hendricks, I was totally fine with her performance. Once again, I think to Sam's point, since it's trying to make fun of sort of these, these stock characters, why not have sort of flat performances? And if done right, it can play into sort of the absurdity of the whole situation. I oh, because I it's mean, Christina Hendricks. She's a good actor. What's wrong with so oh, okay. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is also this. You know, crew knows how much I love Ron Perlman, so I'm always happy to see Ron Perlman show up in any movie. And as the sheriff, I think he was. I think he was pretty good. I I, I thoroughly enjoyed his performance. I was still. I'll <laughs> say, I was still intrigued with where this story was going into this point. Yeah, um, the roommate I was watching it with was like, okay, so he's going to come home and he's going to discover an affair. And then we heard the ow happening. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> opening up the door and seeing Ron Perlman and Christina Hendricks as characters, like in engaging in furry activity um, was definitely not something I, I would have ever had on my 2021 bingo card that like I would be um, like consuming as a, as a, as a viewer was very confused. Dave, I agree. The squirrel joke never really landed for me ever. And I think they almost knew that it was not funny because of how many times they actually repeat it. Um, not only do they repeat it in that scene, over and over again but even like later on maybe like five ten minutes later they repeat it and then they repeat it again at the end of the movie so it's almost like they knew it was not funny um why they continue to to go with the bit i don't know but i would agree with you on that point yeah i guess i mean like i agree in, on both fronts i think the situation is is pretty hilarious uh christine as you've alluded to obviously it's it's pretty ridiculous and un unpredictable but I, I just think that the dialogue writing is very stiff and bad and especially for christina Hendricks, who is very like you know i understand she is playing like an archetype of this sort of character but she's so infantilized in a lot of ways and played by a very talented actress so i just find it frustrating inherently but like that's how those those characters are written i like i hear i hear what you're saying like yes you can draw the the comparisons and parallels and you can say that this is social commentary on these but you could also just make a better movie 
right? Like that's always an option, making a better movie <laughs> rather than making comments. But um, that's not what they chose. Instead, they decided to poke fun at it and make it worse. I mean, on the one hand, like I do think this movie would have been better served by com- like pretty strictly comedic actors, I think would have done a better job with those archetypes. I think there there is a, they expected there to be a charm to them being played by dramatic actors and then embodying those roles. But to me, it just comes off as confusing. But at any rate, yeah, after after this exchange, Maynard returns to his shop. He's drunk on this moonshine and he talks to Parker uh, in a scene that like, yeah, as as we were talking about, as far as the chemistry between um, between Greer and Shannon, this would be a totally menacing scene, uh, even down to like the dialogue and acting. If it weren't for the bouncy soundtrack behind it, that just sort of makes it like a bouncy Danny Elfman sort of like score and like reminds you that this is supposed to be lighthearted because otherwise it's just a drunk Michael Shannon rant against someone. And that's pretty frightening. This goes on and then Parker leaves. Um, she She heads home for the night. And after that, Maynard decides he's going to don a hunting ghillie and tops it off with a gorilla mask that looks like it was made in like the 1960s. Uh, He howls and he lumbers off out into the night. I think when I was watching this, um, I I wasn't sold on the movie just yet. Um, I remember like looking at my phone and doing stuff on my phone and then watching him dress up in the, the, the camo and the the like moss regalia and i was like oh so that's how you put that stuff on because you always see that in like an army surplus story i was like i don't understand how that works oh uh, no i do um but i was also reminded of that video from like forever ago of that poor poor newscaster who's doing some like on the scene reporting and then she turns around and some guy's dressed up as a bush behind her and he's just walking by in the snow have you seen this video oh my god uh, it's great, uh, but I was reminded of that and was sort of like, all right, I'm going to give this movie a chance uh, because like at this point, we didn't we don't know that Bigfoot's coming still. It's just like, this is fucking weird. All right, I'll, I'll give it like five more minutes. Usually, still, yeah, unexpected, unexplained and strange. Yeah, as of it's yet. so as interesting, it's Sam, because I feel like probably <laughs> at the same point in the movie are reactions completely invert because at this point I'm still into the like I'm like oh okay the whole town's gonna think he's big okay this is interest still interesting I yeah I mean I yeah I thought him trudging out into the night great I was still following it still enjoying there's a there's a deeper read of our psyches there Christine that I would love to, to, to spend some time thinking about I would add also at this point, uh, I I agree, Christine. I mean, I do, I do find the first like third of this movie really captivating and it really moves. I mean, I think for, for all the reasons that I said it's bad so far, um, I do think it, it, it at least makes for a very shocking and interesting experience as opposed to what lays perhaps a little further ahead when it starts to kind of fall apart in my opinion. But, but yeah, I, I did enjoy the first third of it a lot, uh, albeit with those criticisms i think maybe because of those criticisms i don't know but after this maynard wakes up the following day uh he's back in his office and he finds that the whole town is abuzz with the news of the evening's multiple bigfoot sightings because apparently everyone in town has embraced this shoddy costume as a genuine cryptid uh it even makes the local news where we get another unfunny recurring gag with the local correspondent Stacy Gutierrez. The joke being, oh my gosh, isn't it funny that there are all these ethnic reporters with such kooky names who roll their R's accordingly? 
It's like they, they do this several times and it's like 1997 called and South Park wants their joke back. Like, yeah, that was on, guys. Yeah. that was not great. But at any rate, that yeah, the town is agog with with Bigfoot mania. So much so that a few local dorks bug Maynard about selling uh, Bigfoot merchandise in his general store and uh, selling sort of like mugs and shirts, which apparently are available the day of the Bigfoot sighting. Uh, additionally, this starts bringing a lot of people into town. Uh, there are buses, these Bigfoot uh, hunt tours that are being shuttled into the town. Uh, all of this with a breaking news story. So I guess it's really gripped the area. And as all this is going on, Maynard speaks with uh, Sheriff Jack about the affair. Uh, Jack, Ron Perlman, uh, assures him that both he and Connie are uh, part of a non-sexual tri-county furry club. Uh, so there's there's no sex going on, but they are uh, they're they're in personas and they're they're kind of doing their thing. So at the very least, it seems an emotional affair. And this is when Maynard's trying to confess, right? But then the sheriff is caught up on another phone call because like Maynard comes into mm-hmm. the office with his bag and he's like, "Oh, I want to like tell you something," and you're like, "Oh, this is going to be a short movie." And then obviously. <laughs> In the conversation, Ron Perlman completely cuts him off and doesn't even let him finish. Mm-hmm. And Perlman, I think, does have some really good comedic timing in this movie, actually. I think he does a pretty good job. There, see, Ron Perlman. Mm. So great. <laughs> I, I mean, he'll always make it work. He's, yeah. He, <laughs> he'll he can figure work it out. Mode, really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, just like, at, at this point, yeah, like, Christine, I very much agree. It's starting to feel like this is going to be a real movie that's going somewhere. And right then, the Australian TV monster hunter, Australian reality TV monster hunter, Brock Masterson, played by Thomas Linton, helicopters into the movie and ruins it for about 50 minutes. I think everything that follows up until the end of this movie, as far as the Bigfoot hunt with uh, with Lennon and crew is so objectively not funny that I find it really cloying and annoying. Uh, any thoughts to the contrary? Yes. Uh, a lot of them. Really? A lot. Okay. A lot. okay. Because, and, and this is not, and this is so strange to me because I'm someone who's like, I hate comedy. I don't like funny things. And here I'm like laughing the whole time. I think it's less to do with the performance of Thomas Lennon because like, like you, you know, everything about him is put on and it's put on like really Mm -hmm. badly. Like you're the, the real viewer is supposed to see through it. And so like Thomas Lennon does that really well. But if you watch any of these fucking ghost hunting or like cryptid hunting shows, that's exactly how these people are. They're insufferable. They're the worst people ever. And yet somehow you're like, uh-huh, I'm going to tune in every fucking week and I'm going to watch you do the same fucking shit. Um, so seeing him come in there, I was like, this is exactly right. Like, this is, of course, this is what would happen. And, you know, like for me, like, already signing up to this movie not not being what i thought it was going to be and i didn't think it was going to be anything um and two just kind of like leaning into it being surreal and just like off the wall crazy i was like yeah absolutely this makes a lot of sense then this is funny i could have se- i could have seen myself really enjoying that movie as a separate movie like I think to I think that Dave brought up the point at the beginning that was like, yeah, the movie can't is is confused, but really <laughs> it's like two competing and, and I think you say, yeah, you said earlier, Dave, it's like two competing tones that can't reconcile. 
And I could see myself really enjoying the movie that the Bigfoot or Sasquatch hunter segments wanted to be if the movie hadn't begun the way it had. When you begin a movie, you're, you're laying the groundwork for the audience tonally. And I was ready for that movie and was, it was jarring when it shifted into the hunt. And then it, it wanted to become like a Jaws parody with the whole oh Ian McShane's God. character, like scratching at the chalkboard when they're having the town meeting. He's trying to be what, uh, Quince, is that the character? Uh, Quinn, yeah. He's Robert, Sh- or Quinn, Yeah. And you're like, okay, so it's trying to be a parody of Supernatural or, you know, Bigfoot Hunters slash Jaws. And so just make that a separate, like, make that its own movie, I guess. I found myself checking my phone (laughs) during this whole segment. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, but but I think I could have liked this movie if it had begun with that, with this segment in mind from the very beginning tonally. Yeah, it just kind of becomes like a a freight train through the established plot we've been paying attention to and building toward. Like all of a sudden, the to me, the infinitely more engaging thing of like this affair, this furry connection, him kind of losing it, him becoming Bigfoot, everyone believing it. Like there's so much going on with that that involves so many characters. And then all of a sudden it's the Tom Lennon show for about like an hour. I, I do like Tom Lennon. I think like re, his performances in Rio 911, he's great. He wrote Night at the Museum, the whole series, and he made bank off that. Um, he's a pretty, pretty, he's a funny guy. But yeah, I just, I just find when the, when we hand the keys of this movie over to him, his, his would-be hunter buddies, you know, Ian McShane and, uh, and Ron Perlman, then we've totally deflated the, deflated the momentum of like where this was going, albeit how, however uh, unpredictable. And then it just becomes kind of, I don't know, a cloying comedy movie for an hour for me, at least. But I do appreciate, Sam, though, that like you have that informed perspective of like watching those kind of shows and it being an accurate parody of that um, because I'm not too familiar with those shows and stuff. But it, yeah, as far as just the plot, it, it seems to just derail to go in this direction that it suddenly thinks is funnier like midway through the movie. Yeah, I think I'm just going to shut up because I, um, everything you guys are like, oh yeah, this is a problem. Like, I didn't think so. So, you know what? Sometimes movies work. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's all about the viewer and their personal experience too. And I'll just say, for some reason, <laughs> everything that's a problem that you're coming up with, I'm like, I actually liked it because of that reason. So <laughs> I'm just going to stop. I'm going to stop. <laughs> no way i think you should no no going. yeah no yeah i think that just yeah i mean i said it before i think the movie did not do itself i i think the movie did itself a disservice by yeah these competing tones where it should have just decided what it would wanted to be because i could get behind part two if if it just knew it wanted to be that i think i could have found like joy and hilarity in that but it just, yeah, it was just a hijacking and it was like, all right, let's drive this car with a new driver. And that was not going to work. Well, I mean, moving on then into this this segment. Yeah, I mean, we get Tom Lennon. He shows up. He starts doing his uh, show to everyone's 
excitement throughout the town. They think that it's going to really, they're, they're not only mystified by this, uh, this supposed Bigfoot that's wandering their community, but also they're really excited because this could bring a lot of attention and therefore a lot of tourism and a lot of, uh, a lot of funds to their basically failing town, which we haven't talked about yet, by the way. I mean, it's called Pottersville. That pretty much a direct reference to It's a Wonderful Life. So I've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. That's one of those movies oh, that really? I know everyone on the face of this earth has seen, and I've never seen it. Uh, well, I'm a very good movie, Christine. But uh, yeah, at any rate, I mean, yeah, this movie sort of presupposes that uh, spoiler alert, unless you're unfamiliar with the countless things that have parodied it. George Bailey does make a wish at one point around Christmas time that he was never born. Uh, an angel shows up to him and it gives him a vantage point on what that world would be like. And what that world would be like is uh, the world that doesn't become Bedford Falls because of George Bailey's political influence. It remains Pottersville, an economically destitute place ravaged by capitalism via Mr. Potter. So this movie kind of assumes that George Bailey got his wish and was never born. Oh, you know, the whole thing's a joke. Like, why would you even <laughs> bring up It's a Wonderful Life? Like, it had nothing to do with it. And so, like, that that's, again, why it's so funny, because, like, it didn't, it didn't need to do it, but it did it. And so I was like, oh, my God, yeah. And it looks like Bedford Falls. Like, it, it does. Like, the street looks the same. Everything yeah. does. For no reason. And I think that just adds to the hilarity. So, Dave, you might be planning on bringing this up in your production notes, but oh, I, I heard... I almost no production notes. You, okay, so <laughs> can you confirm or deny this rumor that this movie was actually like a money laundering scheme? Did you read it, about this? <laughs> I had read something that it was shot up in, in upstate New York, um, <laughs> nearby... Which like, I local... think is fascinating. Sorry, keep going. Well, it was nearby like a local like filmmaking school... And the idea being that this movie would be that town's advert, that town and university's advertisement that, hey, come make movies in upstate New York at our college. So, uh, yeah, I guess maybe with that, like, larger context, I think I read something where it was like, it was not just a project that would put a spotlight on these this filmmaking school or, like, the film department of the school, but in order for the state of New York to pay for equipment, they needed to, essentially there was some, there was some funding and, and like lots and lots of film equipment tied to this project. And it had to be fulfilled in order for the state of New York to give them all of this uh, material. So not Mm -hmm. money laundering, but there are, at least I had heard that there were rumors (laughs) that there was real no intent there was no real intention to make a good movie that this was really just like get a bunch of familiar faces and a-listers to like star in this movie nobody's going to give a shit whether this is actually of quality but this town will get a lot of equipment and funding for their next projects which i think is a great like if you look at this movie as a fundraising effort i think that's that's great. Either money laundering or fundraising, who knows? <laughs> it's it's up for interpretation. But I, okay, I brought that up to say I wonder what the budget was. If you have those stats, I'd be curious because all well, a lot of the scenes where they are hunting for Sasquatch look like they just went up to the local Christmas tree farm. 
and just shot these among Christmas trees that had yet to be chopped down, which as a setting is quite nice uh, and quite interesting. But it was just it was funny to just watch the the limited budget that they might have been uh, that they might have been working with. I ha- I have no idea of the budget. Uh, I just yeah I know that I mean like that's not that unusual. Like in in like Toronto, there was a big push to like you know um, encourage uh, encourage companies to come and film there. There was a huge push in like Sydney and stuff. So that's that's not that uncommon to like you know market one's location as like a very filmable an economically filmable destination. So money laundering, according to my source, that was way over dramatic, but. Um, I did watch another Christmas movie that I enjoyed, Santa Girl, and that was uh, all filmed by film students at Susquehanna University. And I didn't know that until after. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm intrigued. So hot wrecks. Actually, no, I do have some specific issues with Santa Girl that are, I'll bring that up (laughs) later. But yeah, so yeah, anyhow. Christmas movies and getting fundraising for film departments. I love that as a <laughs> uh, collaborative effort. Well, so as we've alluded to at this point, they're in the woods. They're hunting Bigfoot. They're doing it for this show. Tom Lennon, uh, his character uh, Masterson, has kind of like uh, formed a posse of sorts with Sheriff Jack and Bart. And they're going off into the woods again to hunt down and capture Bigfoot. Maynard, meanwhile, uh, has been kind of like taken by the enthusiasm of the townsfolk and feels that he needs to push the Bigfoot charade a little bit further, continuing to appear and disappear before our would-be hunters. Uh, This is kind of like also about as close as this gets to being kind of like a holiday or Christmas movie in any message sense, because we learn that Maynard's whole thing when he's speaking with Parker, Judy Greer, about this, uh, and sort of like almost like coyly suggesting like, hey, by the way, well, it's Michael Shannon. Hey, by the way, I'm Bigfoot, but not quite saying it. And she's starting to like catch on sort of like quietly. He he just sort of says that this is, the, you know, it, it it's really good for the town. It's something that the people's Pottersville need. They, they need something to believe in. So that, I guess, is as close to a Christmas message as we get necessarily outside of it being set in a wintry town and and so on. So it's kind of like barely a Christmas movie to a degree. But Parker is urging Maynard to reconsider because Bart, we've learned, has brought live ammo on this Bigfoot hunt. So she's concerned for his safety. So yeah, all that's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's chaos. And um, (laughs) I think something I really enjoyed is the moment, the like meta moment of um thomas lennon's character being like i this is actually real i'm not real i don't know how to do any of this this is terrifying and um as someone like i've I've said now several times that watches the the ghost hunting and the the cryptid shows it really frustrates me that every time anything remotely close to supernatural happens they're screaming and they're running away and running out of the place and i'm like who what God damn it, go back. Um, like I'm a huge skeptic. So like I, I want to see if these things are actually happening. And like you never get you you would somehow you never get an answer when they just scream and run away. You uh, know? That's why so, you scream and run away. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so like I, I like that too. Well, it, it continues in this in this vein. I mean, after this cat and mouse Bigfoot hunt that sort of Apologies, Sam. My notes are very harsh. That for me feels like it lives along for an eternity. Uh, our three hunters discover a furry, not orgy, but like 
rubbing up against each other fest kind of that they have going on in the woods. It's not explicitly sexual, but they're furries that are sort of grinding and rubbing on each other with, with fully, you know, fully zipped up suits and personas, I guess. It's really kind of hard to pin down what, either this movie doesn't know what a furry is or it's trying to make a joke of it without explicitly describing it as sexual. I don't know. Either way, regardless, furries are a punchline in this movie, which yeah, it's kink shamey and not great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that perhaps when they were, you know, trying to come up with an idea for this movie, they were like, hey, you know what would be funny? Furries. And then they just didn't do any research and just left it at that. If I was someone who was writing a movie and I wanted to include furries, I think I would be too afraid to, because, you know, the, the people of the furry community are, are good people. I don't even want to say anything. I don't want to say anything because, like, I don't know what, what they're going to do. They're with nice me, people, you know? but they take it seriously. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'll say it there. Leave it there. Although there is a kind of, I, admittedly, sort of a pretty great moment for me where, um, I mean, Jack and um, and Masterson are kind of gleefully joining in with the furries in this cavorting and canoodling until Bart draws a gun on the furries, which is kind of a pretty funny image, a dude drawing a gun on a bunch of furries. Like, I mean, again, this movie does make them a punchline, so that's not really that cool, but it is just sort of like, admittedly, an inherently kind of funny image. <laughs> In a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't shoot them. He fires into the air and he demands they disperse, which they do. Uh, eventually, the hunters track down and shoot Maynard, not with the loaded uh, live ammo gun, but with a trank gun, and then return him to the town to present what is clearly a man in a mismatched gorilla costume to the eager public. However, when it's found out that Maynard is in costume, Masterson flips out, insisting that the show will be ruined and he'll be a laughingstock. So he threatens to sue the entire town for $150 million in damages, which of course begs the question, what? (laughs) It's just so ridiculous. And especially when he says it's the opposite of a class action suit. It's (laughs) I I really, I actually laughed pretty hard at that moment. <laughs> that was a really good line. <laughs> that one, and I did actually have a genuine yuck uh, in the midst of all this Bigfoot hunting that I, I'm bashing uh, throughout this episode. There was really one really funny moment when Lennon is uh, talking about the history of Bigfoot to Ron Perlman and to Ian McShane and talking about how he theorizes that perhaps Earth is a a place that Bigfoot as an alien has been relegated to roam forever as a sort of prison to which Ron Perlman offers the line, wait, so Earth is a prison for Bigfoot? Which is <laughs> also very funny, line. actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, just the fact that they called them Squatches? Squatches, yeah. I, I, I almost couldn't say it. So my roommate has a cat named Sassy, and Sassy has a whole bunch of nicknames, and one of them is Squanch. Oh. And so, like, it came so close to Squanch. And I was like, oh, God, Sassy, they're talking about you on there. And of course, the cat's like, huh? <laughs> Sam, have you seen the Sasquatch documentary on Hulu? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you have. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great, great. great. That's all news. Come on. I just, I, yeah, I was like, we, you know, conversation for another time, but 
I don't believe Sorry. in any cryptid. Uh, yeah, I want to believe in Mothman. You know, I want to. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I don't watch all of these documentaries and everything as soon as they come out. And I just consume it because I'm like, there's got to be an answer. And I know the answer is no. <laughs> if we ever did like... Graphic. <laughs> like a like a supernatural myth or like lore or legend month, I would totally do Mothman prophecies. Oh no! Get ready yes. to hear me talk about oh, how yes. much I hate another movie. Oh, <laughs> you hear me defend that movie till the end of time. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so the town folk at this point are furious with Maynard for deceiving them and possibly bankrupting the whole town on. Oh, right. Christmas. It's a Christmas movie. Right, right. So it's Christmas. I almost forgot that with all the furries and the reality TV humor. But yes, it's a Christmas movie. Um, So the townsfolk are very upset. And it's now that Parker decides to gather the townsfolk to give them an earful about how they treated and taken advantage of Maynard for so many years, revealing that in his big debt ledger, the one that he's recorded all these, all these, you know, um, on the house grocery debts for, Uh, It has actually never been written in. It doesn't have a single debt owed to him written on any page, which makes them all feel uh, like garbage. Maynard, meanwhile, makes a heartfelt apology on the local news, who must be having one hell of a slow holiday to cover this general store owner turned fake Bigfoot bullshit. But it's, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting sort of like spin on It's a Wonderful Life a little bit. Again, here, where after the townsfolk feel really bad about it and they decide they're going to show up and they're you know they're going to pay their debt to Maynard in what looks like I don't know like five or six five or one dollar bills that they kind of <laughs> throw on the table it doesn't look like a lot of money <laughs> but it is sort of that wonderful life moment where George Bailey where the town appreciates him and and kind of helps him through a difficult time financially yeah that was the only moment where i was like okay i guess with the it's a wonderful life nod (laughs) and then in the end uh we don't have to worry about masterson's suit after all because he's since been outed as a fraud kicked off of the network we actually see him being kicked out of a building the top of which just says network (laughs) um so he's, you know, he's sort of the antagonist of the film and still a looming financial threat, but he's diffused in five seconds in a montage right before the movie ends. So no need to worry about any of that. Uh, and then Maynard tells Connie, uh, his wife, that she should move on with her life and then takes Parker up on her offer from earlier in the film to make some of her, quote, famous Jiffy Pop. I, I believe that's just microwave popcorn. But the two of them decide that they're going to sign a lease for the foreclosed old mill, reviving it as Pottersville's own Bigfoot Museum, uh, which I assume for budgetary reasons we never see the inside of. And then they share one of the most unconvincing and uncomfortable on-screen kisses I've seen in any movie just before we cut to black. But just before we make that cut to black and we get the credits, they both turn as they hear what sounds like a genuine Bigfoot call coming from off screen. Because yes, wouldn't that be an interesting twist if Bigfoot was possibly real all along? Only to have that revelation treated as an off screen sound effect seconds before we cut to the end of the movie. So that's what I so call it. Twist, folks. <laughs> so Is it though? We don't even confirm that it's actually Bigfoot. It's just like, it's that, that sounds like Bigfoot hey, and they both look surprised. And then it's over. I'm always up for an ambiguous ending. I love, I love, Cutting out in unexpected times and big questions about, you know, the existence of elements like Bigfoot. Sometimes it's it's not about how you get there, but it's about the ending you'll never see, you know? <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> 
So in closing, I mean, like, it does sound probably via my description as though I hated this movie. And I don't. I do think it's a bizarre curio, one one that should be seen with no context. And I do think, yeah, that middle portion is, for me, is really difficult to watch. I got, it really tested my attention and I got really exhausted with its style of comedy. But I do think that the stranger elements surrounding that, the main thrust of the plot surrounding Michael Shannon, when we get away from Tom Lennon for a little bit and catch our breath and actually kind of get a story, I find it to be so bizarre and it's casting its tone, its execution, its writing, its sense of humor, that though I don't think it sticks to landing on any of those things, it is interesting in the way that it doesn't. But uh, it does sound as though you guys really like this movie. So any any parting words as concerns Pottersville? Well, I'll clarify really liking. I I was quite enjoying the first, you know, 15, 20, 25, and then also found the whole middle and end not what I had expected and therefore was kind of bored by, but I would suggest watching it. I think it's a seeing to seeing is believing kind of uh movie. Yeah. And I very intrigued. That. And I'm going to do, I'm going to do some more research about this, uh, about the backstory of production. I'm going to get to the bottom of this story. I'm going to break this case. <laughs> You're going to be the Brock Masterson of the Pottersville receipts. I'm going to I'm going to be up there like sleuthing around, figuring out why this movie was made, who made it and who got all the equipment for this picture. You know, it's it's a movie like this that makes me so glad that I'm on a movie podcast with you guys, Um, because it's it's truly the duality of man. Right. Sometimes we bring movies that are just like so emotional and so like um, cerebral. And you guys are talking all about it. And I'm like, I hate it. And then you bring something like this about Bigfoot. And you guys are like, I don't like it. I'm like, it's great. You should see it. (laughs) So I like that. I will also add, yeah, speaking of the duality of man, this is my choice over The Shining for our cult movie theme. <laughs> Just because if we did a Shining episode, it would have to be like three hours long. So uh, instead, you get instead here. Here's a little Pottersville for you. Uh, we do have some more cold stuff coming down the pike uh, next week. If you rejoin us, it's going to be a pretty interesting look into a film that uh, captures a very cold setting. And uh, it's very interesting and illuminating ways, both warm and cold. So uh, it'll be very cool to touch uh, base next week with you folks as we dive into that movie and wrap up this theme. Before we go, does anyone have anything they'd like to plug beyond, of course, the Movie John Podcast Network, uh, Disney Deviants, Killer Bees, and uh, the whole suite of great shows they have over there. Catch us on the socials, which I never remember, so I'll let someone take over from here. Um, I, I was going to say, we almost forgot to even mention them. I know, I know. I panicked. I panicked when I had to promote this on Disney Deviance. I was like, ah, yeah, we're butter with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how many episodes have we done? And none of us can ever get it right. <laughs> oh, it's We reach the end of an episode and we've exhausted ourselves mentally and we're like, I don't know. It's social media. You guys can figure it out. <laughs> I just know that in particular, Connor's eye is twitching somewhere and he doesn't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do know we are Butter With That One on Twitter and uh, Butter With That Podcast at gmail.com. Check us out next week as we round out this theme. Thank you so much for joining us. Until then, have a good whatever. Bye.